desperate people looking for help and hope. I wonder if that describes you this morning. Or perhaps I should say, I wonder to what degree that describes you this morning. Because all of us are desperate in need of help and hope. None of us go through life without feeling the inadequacy to control our circumstances, our insufficiency to accomplish and obtain all that we desire, and our inability to change ourselves or others. And so what are you desperate for this morning? Relief from chronic health troubles? Freedom from addiction to that substance or to that screen? Desperate for reconciliation in that broken relationship? For that unmet godly desire to be answered? Financial pressures to ease? Chronic sin to be defeated? Maybe you're desperate for relief from mental health struggles. Freedom from the fear of man. For that crippling anxiety or debilitating depression to go away. For that feeling of loneliness and that weary soul to be swallowed up by joy. What is it? We're all desperate people looking for help and hope. And if that's true, then the question is this. Where will you look? In times of desperation, where will you look for help and hope? That's the question that will guide us this morning as we continue working through the book of Kings. As we've studied this book over the last couple of months, we've seen the power of God's word to accomplish God's purposes. We've seen the promise of worshiping the Lord alone. He has no rivals. And we've been tracking the promise for God to provide a forever king in the lineage of King David. And as we open up first and second Kings, we see this transition from a man named Elijah to Elisha. And this significant event in the life of God's people happens at the Jordan River. And this reminds us of another transition that happened. Moses transitioning leadership to Joshua as they enter the promised land where? At the Jordan River. And this transition points us forward to another transition of John the baptizer, who is said to be in the spirit of Elijah, who is preparing the way for the greater prophet Jesus. Where did that happen? At the Jordan River. Do you see, beloved, the Bible is not a random haphazard mix of moralistic stories, but it's one interconnected story of God rescuing and redeeming his wayward people. And here in 2 Kings, Elijah was God's appointed man to confront God's wayward people to bring them back. But Elijah is now gone. And so who is going to speak on behalf of God's people? Who's going to confront the wicked and rebellious kings who keep leading Israel deeper into darkness? Who is going to be the one? Enter Elisha. And remember what Elisha asked in 2 Kings 2, verse 9. Elisha said to Elijah, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Elisha desired not just to continue Elijah's ministry, but increase it, a double portion. And as Nathan mentioned last week, Elijah has eight recorded miracles in Kings. Elisha has 16, a double portion. 
These miracles are validating that Elisha is God's appointed man to speak God's powerful word. And today we'll see that double portion reflects not only Elisha's ministry, but also the Lord's generosity. The Lord gives double portion blessings to desperate and undeserving people. So if you're desperate, and you're looking for a double portion of help and hope, I trust that our passage this morning will be an encouragement to your soul. These chapters cover 11 of Elisha's 16 miracles. And so no, I am not going to describe every one of them in detail. And no, I'm not gonna answer every question you have in this passage. I still have plenty myself. But we are going to pay attention to the overarching theme. And I think it's clear. The overarching theme is we find all kinds of desperate people. Some look to the Lord and his word for hope. And those that do, they receive grace and blessing. Others reject that word only to receive judgment and cursing. In times of desperation, where will you look for help and hope? Let's jump in. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So that the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. So here we find a group of desperate people. Men in the city come to Elisha informing him the water is bad and the land is barren. And we know if you look at verse 15, they're actually in the city of Jericho. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in this city, they're facing hardship. Remember, Jericho was the first city Israel conquered when they went into the promised land. And God made a promise, anybody who rebuilds Jericho will be cursed. And what did we read back in first Kings? Ahab comes in and what does he do? He rebuilds Jericho. And so it's a cursed city. But the Lord brings blessing. Elisha heals the water and assures them it will no longer cause death. And notice what the text says, but look at verse 21. Thus says the Lord, verse 22. According to the word Elisha spoke, what does that mean? The word Elisha spoke is equated to the word God speaks. How you treat the prophet and his word is how you treat the Lord and his word. And how do we see the desperate people here treating Elisha? They recognize him as a true prophet of the Lord. They come to him with their problem. Elisha acts and God's word through God's prophet brings God's grace. even. Jericho. And in doing so, we see the character of the Lord, a double portion blessing. He not only heals the water and the land, he brings life where there was once death. Do you see the Lord delights to take the most curse-ridden, sin-laden, judgment-deserving situations and turn them to instances of his grace and blessing to be poured out? This is what naturally comes from the Lord. He's eager to give grace to desperate and undeserving people. And it's important here to realize this miracle isn't a violation of the natural order. 
but a restoration of it. This and all the other miracles in scripture, by the way, if you believe Genesis 1-1, God created all things, and we believe that he rose his son from the dead, all these other miracles are, are, are child's play. Right, But they're, they're not just these violations of the natural order. They're, they're restoration of the natural order. So I talk about miracles in the Bible like a peephole in a door. You look through them to see what's on the other side. And in this case, this miracle gives us glimpses. It glimpses back to the Garden of Eden. Perfect creation, no bad water, fruitful land, no death. Elisha is showing this is the blessing of what was. But Elisha is also showing us the blessing of what will be. Heaven, the greater garden, there will be streams of water, lush vegetation, and there will be no death. Only life to the fullest, all of God's people, enjoying all of God's blessings forever. And I know like many of us here in Jericho, many of us have also tasted I look in this room and I know several of you have had miscarriages. You've seen children die, your own. You've grieved the death of parents and friends. Or maybe like the people in Jericho, it's something different. Your your past is riddled with sin. You think too great for the Lord to forgive. That immoral act where you took advantage of another, that sin-twisted decision you made last year or last night. But no matter what the case is, you're desperate. Desperate for healing and hope. And the Lord is inviting you this morning to come to him. Will you go to the greater Elisha, the prophet Jesus, and hear him say, I conquered death. One day it will be no more. Until then, come to me, all who are laboring, heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. You see, Jesus gives us rest now. And one day soon, beloved, Jesus Christ, the one who rose from the dead, will eradicate death forever, no more. A double blessing. Though we live in Jericho today, of sorts, we too can have hope in Christ. What happens if we look elsewhere? Well, we see this in the next couple of verses. Look at 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. He, that is Elisha, went from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. Perhaps one of the stranger passages in Scripture. Nathan Lee is conveniently on vacation. But, I mean, it is disturbing, right? And here's the point. It should be. Fierce judgment for rejecting God's word. And here's the thing. It's tempting to read this passage and picture in our minds, a few few innocent third graders poking fun at a street preacher. He gets mad and he calls down the fire of heaven and boom, they're gone. And we're like, yep, there's the old mean old God of the Old Testament again. There he's, he's doing it again. 
That's not what's happening. Just, just notice a few things from this passage. Notice where they are. They are in Bethel. Bethel is the center for idolatrous golden calf worship. We see that back in 1 Kings 12. And the word small boys has a large semantic range. It's probably more like youths or young men, as some translations put it. And notice, there's at least 42 of them, probably more. This isn't an innocent crowd. It's a hate-filled mob. And they come out of the city chasing Elisha down. That's what they're doing. They're yelling at Elisha, go up, you bald head, go up. And they're not picking on Elisha because of what he looks like. They're, they're calling Elisha bald. And in doing so, they're likely contrasting him with Elijah, who in chapter 1, verse 8, was known for wearing garments of what? Hair. And they're saying, go up. Go up. If you're a true prophet, go up in the whirlwind like Elijah. Or go up. Keep on going. We don't want your kind here in Bethel. In other words, they're rejecting Elisha as a true prophet of the Lord. They're not making fun of Elisha as a person. They're re rejecting Elisha as God's true prophet. And remember what we just saw. How you treat the prophet and his word is how you treat the Lord and his word. That's why, if you look at the text, Elisha curses them what? Not because he's angry. In the name of the Lord. This isn't personal vengeance from an irritable prophet. It's divine judgment from a just God. And it should be disturbing. It's a warning on the nation, and it's a warning to us. Persistent mockery of the Lord, continual rejection of his word will only bring dreadful consequences. And it must be this way. The Lord is holy and just. He must reject and judge all that against his word because his word is his character. We actually want a just God. We want just us. We typically just don't want it for ourselves or our tribe or our group. But those people, yeah, get those people. But the Lord doesn't have distinctions that are man-made like ours. We all stand before the Lord. But in this opening section, I want you to notice something. The first word Elisha gives back in Jericho is a word of life. It is only after that judgment comes. And so, yes, there are dreadful consequences for rejecting God's word, but he's offering life first for all who will come to him. And so if you want to talk more about that, what does it look like to receive God's word or reject God's word, what you, what's happening? Talk to the friend who brought you here this morning. If you don't have one, you just showed up, come talk to me. I'll get you connected with one of the members of our church so we can walk with you in this so you can understand the difference between the two. So here's, we open up 2 Kings 2, we find a group of desperate people. And in chapter 3, we find more desperate people. Chapter 3, we read of a battle between Israel and Moab. Jehoram is one of Ahab's sons. He's now the king of Israel. That's the 10 northern tribes. He's wicked like his dad. And so Moab breaks a business deal. And he doesn't go to the negotiation table he goes to the nuclear war room. 
says, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to gather some others. So he goes and he, he enlists the help of Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah. That's the southern two tribes. And they got a friendly neighbor, Edom. And so they enlist Edom as well. So you have three kings going against one king. Verse nine. So the king of Israel, that's Ahab, went with the king of Judah, that's Jehoshaphat, with the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Now, noticeably at this point, no one is seeking the Lord for decision. The first time the Lord comes up is when Jehoram blames them. Jehoshaphat doesn't even seek the Lord. He did that back in 1 Kings, but here he just jumps right in. So evidently, for whatever reason, in this moment, Jehoshaphat didn't feel desperate. And he lived by impulse and desire rather than by the Lord's instruction. Beloved, just a reminder that at times you may not feel desperate. And in those moments, you'll be feel tempted to make decisions without seeking the Lord. And I just plead with you, don't make decisions alone especially life-shaping decisions. Seek the Lord and his word, not just personally in prayer. Yes, do that. But get godly counsel from others, from friends who can bring God's word to bear on your situation that it might go well with you. Because here in 2 Kings 3, it does not go well. There is no water. There is complaining and there is blaming God. What does that sound like? The Exodus. God's people, though the Lord is patient, they fail to learn their lesson. Mercifully, Jehoshaphat finally feels desperate enough that he asks a question in verse 11. And Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? And one of the servants like, "Uh, Elisha, dude, he's here. Verse 12, and Jehoshaphat says, the word of the Lord is with him. Elisha speaks, so does the Lord. Surprisingly, Jehoram agrees to go hear Elisha. And look at Elisha's response to Jehoram in verse 13. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what I have to do with you, go to the prophets of your fathers and the prophets of your mother. Elisha is offended by Jehoram's supposed interest and responds a bit sarcastically. Why? Because he knows what Jehoram is up to. He knows that Jehoram is using God like a genie in a bottle. There's a bottle sitting on a shelf. And until I have a personal need to meet a personal want, it's going to sit over there. But the moment I have a need, I'm going to pick the bottle up. I'm going to rub it. I'm going to hope the genie comes out, gives me my wish. And if it doesn't give me my wish, I'm going to say, genie, you are bad. Do you see what Jehoram is doing? He seeks the Lord out of worry and convenience, not because he's worshiping with conviction. He isn't seeking the Lord. He's only using the Lord to seek what he wants. And here's a warning to us, beloved. Don't treat the word of God like the airbag in your car, only there in case of an accident. The Lord invites us and calls us to feel our continual desperation and dependence that we might continually seek him. 
He knows what we need most is not just a change in our circumstances, but a content heart. And only he can satisfy, sustain, and strengthen our heart no matter what troubles we face. For our good, the Lord calls us to lifelong submission to his word that we might enjoy him, not just temporary consultation that we might use him. Jehoram tries to use God. But Jehoshaphat seeks to honor him. He made a mistake here, but now he's seeking to honor. And mercifully, we read this in verse 14. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. And then in verse 16 and 17, the Lord promises to bring water, the very thing they needed. But wait, there's more. Verse 18, this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand a double portion blessing. You'll get the water that you need and the victory you don't deserve. This is a light thing. The Lord delights to give more than we deserve, even more than we ask for. Do you see the lavish goodness of the Lord yet again? And here's the thing, why is all this happening for Jehoram? He's an undeserving man. He's rebelled against the Lord. Why did he receive a double portion blessing? Because there was another man, Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was a king in the lineage of David. So God had regard for him. Because the Lord had regard for Jehoshaphat, Jehoram received everything though he deserved nothing. Oh, beloved, do you see? The same is true for us. For all those trusting in Jesus, the Lord lavishes his blessing upon us, not because we deserve them, but because there's another king. And this king stands in the lineage of David. And we stand beside him, King Jesus. And we, because of Jesus, because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection. We receive everything, though we deserve nothing. Because of Jesus, sin is paid. Because of Jesus, Satan is defeated. Because of Jesus, death is conquered. To provide for our daily needs is a light thing for the Lord. To provide eternal salvation and satisfaction is a lavish gift of grace, a double portion blessing. And this is who the Lord is. Elisha promised the water would come, and it does. And when the Moabites see the water, they think it's blood. Sound like the Exodus? Miraculously, they're fooled into thinking the king of Israel and Edom and Judah have fought each other and they're dead. And now they're rushing in to take the spoils of the victory. Well, Moab is wrong. Israel attacks and now the king of Moab is the one who is desperate. Where will he look for help and hope? Well, verse 17 tells us he gets 700 of his elite forces together and they try to fight and break through, digging in further into the fight, but it doesn't work. So in verse 27, he goes deeper into darkness. He partakes in a gruesome act of pagan worship, sacrificing his own son as a burnt offering, evidently trying to manipulate whatever little G God is supposed to act on his behalf. Do you see the Moabite king is left with a defeated army, a destroyed land, and a murdered son. 
And here we find another picture of the destruction that comes from rejecting the Lord and his word. We can hold tighter to our sin. We can dig in a little deeper. We can try to coerce and manipulate that little G God to act on our behalf, but it's only gonna cost us much. This is what false religion and idolatry does. It burdens and it puts us into bondage. We may be tempted to think and to make sacrifices, not to a pagan God, but in today's little G gods, money, sex, power, fame, career, they're beckoning us to serve them. One particular little G God today is the the God of cultural acceptance. Get in line or get canceled. And here's the little thing. Here's the thing about these little G gods. They demand everything from us without truly delivering us. Moabite king, defeated army, destroyed land, murdered son. The Lord... I believe put this here to give us a contrast between his double portion blessings of gospel grace and the demanding burdens of false religion. And he's saying, which will you choose? In times of desperation, looking for help and hope, which will you choose? Will you dig in and double down and and bear the burdens that false religion demand? Or will you stand next to Jesus? the other king, and when you look to his word and receive blessings that you don't deserve, which will you choose? For those of you who've read that know that chapter three ends with a less than climatic, kind of confusing finish. Uh, Israel does not achieve the total victory they're promised. The, The Lord's promise doesn't fail. Israel fails to act. For some reason, I've got my theories. You can come talk to me later. For some reason, Israel withdraws. And I think the author's point is they fail to listen to the word of God and go deeper into darkness. That's where they're heading. But the Lord still isn't giving up. His double portion blessings for the desperate and undeserving continue to pour out. That's exactly what we see in chapters four and five. More desperate people, undeserving, receiving double portion blessings. Chapter four, verse one through seven we read of the poor widow. The poor widow has a debt to pay. And if she can't pay her debt, her sons will have to basically go be sold off into bond servants to pay off the debt. So this woman who's lost her husband is now in threat of losing her sons and they're in her security. So what does she do? Verse one. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha. <clears throat> She isn't turning away from God in crisis, but seeking him. And in merciful kindness, Elisha asked, what shall I do for you? Tell me what you have in the house. She admits her desperation. I've got nothing but a jar of oil. And so Elisha gives her some instructions. Go get some jars. And notice he says, not a few. In other words, go get a lot of jars. Then take the oil that you do have and start filling them up. And she obeys, she does. And her small amount of oil is turned into an abundance. So much so that look at verse seven. She has enough, what, to pay off the debt and what? An abundance to live on the rest. A double portion blessing. 
Here we have a poor unnamed widow. She brings her desperate plea to God and God in his compassion hears and provides. Now it's true, God don't go home and get jars of oil and try, try to do this. Like that, this is this is what's called descriptive and not prescriptive. Big difference. This is describing what happened, not telling us what to do. The Lord will probably choose to act differently in our circumstances. But here's the point. His character hasn't changed. The only thing we know about this woman is she's poor. She's in debt. We don't even know her name. And she cries out to the Lord. And he delightfully pours out double blessings on the unnamed, unknown, who are desperately and faithfully seeking him. That's this God. When verses 8 through 37, we meet not a poor woman, but a rich woman. Not a widow, but a wife. But whereas the widow had two sons, this woman has no sons. She is barren. Uh, This woman and her husband practice gospel hospitality. The text tells us they know Elisha is a man of God. And so as he travels through Shunem, the city they're in, uh, they build a little guest room for him. They they, they set up Elisha, their uh, personal Airbnb. So as he's coming through town, he can stop in and stay over. Elisha appreciates this. And so he asks what, what can I, he asked the same question of the rich woman that he asked to the widow. What can I do for you? Hey, I know the king. I know the commander. I can put a good word in for you. What do you want me to do for you? And her response in verse 13, she says, I dwell among my own people. In other words, I'm content. I don't need anything. But Gehazi See, Elisha's servant informs Elisha that this woman doesn't have a son. She is barren. So in verse 16, Elisha says, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And in verse 17, she says, don't say that. Don't get my hopes up. Yet against all odds, she has a son the next year, just as Elisha promised. but the story doesn't end there. In the following verses, we read when her son grows up a little bit, probably a little boy, seven or eight years old, he suddenly dies. The woman who was content with life before having no children now holds her dead son in her arms and she's desperate. And it's sobering to note, beloved, on this occasion, It's God's blessing that leads to the hurt and desperation. It's God's answer to her desires that lead her to anguish as he gives and then takes away. And I know some of you have experienced this very thing. Some of you have a child that was given to you and you held that child as it died in your arms. Given and taken away. Some of you, it's maybe not a child, but it's a hope of something. It's hope of a marriage. 
It looks like it's going to go well. Maybe you were even engaged. Done. That career opportunity, that family member, that friend was so close to coming in Christ, interested in the gospel, and then they just stop and even end the relationship. And it's like you get punched in the stomach by God himself. And tears flow and you wonder, why God, why God would you dangle the carrot and when I'm so close I can grab it, you would take it away? Why? I was so comforted by this passage this week. Because here's the thing. I don't have to have some great, profound, personal insight for you on this. I'm just going to tell you what Elisha said in verse 27. The Lord is hidden from me, and he has not told me. Beloved, don't feel like you have to have the answer when you're comforting somebody in suffering. You're likely going to say something stupid. Just be like Elisha. I'm like, I don't know. The Lord hasn't told me. But here's the thing. The very fact the stories in the Bible shows us God is not aloof to our suffering, our pain. Saints from the past and the present share in our pain. The Lord cares. And so we have to ask, where, where will we go for help and hope? Verse 22, this woman, notice the text, she goes quickly to the man of God. The text tells us in verse 27, she caught hold of his feet. She clings to the man of God. And how you treat the prophet in his word is how you treat the Lord in his word. In verse 30, she, look what she says in verse 30. As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. That's the same thing Elisha said to Elijah, showing his total commitment and trust in the Lord, no matter what situation unfolds. And so though this woman has many questions and fears and wounds, she will not abandon the Lord no matter what she faces. He is her only help and hope. Like the poor widow, this rich woman runs to God and she, she offers this peculiar mixture of all is well, she says. After her son dies, she says twice, all is well, verse 23 and in verse 26. And then she's described twice as being in bitter distress. So the soul gripped by grief, yet clinging to God, is this peculiar mixture of, it is well, I'm in bitter distress. Times of desperation can be disorienting and exhausting because we firmly believe and acutely feel two seemingly contradictory things at once. All is well, I'm in distress. It's exhausting. It's disorienting. But this woman knows what to do. She clings to God. And it's comforting to know that Elisha, too, is desperate in this situation. So I don't know what to do. The Lord hadn't told me. Yes, I'm a prophet, but I am not God. Where does Elisha go for help and hope? Verse 33. So he, Elisha, went in and shut the door behind the two of them, and they prayed to the Lord. Where did Elisha run for help and hope? 
I'm limited in power. I'm going to go to the God who is unlimited in power. Elisha covers the boy with himself, eyes to eyes, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, hand to hand. Complete covering, uniting and identifying with the once dead body. If you look down from heaven, all you would have seen is Elisha. And where Elisha is, the Lord is. And where the Lord is, there is life. A double portion blessing. A son given, a son raised. Not just a display of power, but a compassionate, kind God. Giving to desperate, undeserving people. We're not promised miraculous miraculous outcomes like this. I don't know why God acts in certain situations, giving to some and taking from others. I don't know. But I do know he hears the cries of his children. And if that's where you are this morning, I'll just encourage you to go this afternoon and maybe read Psalm 34. One of the brothers in my community group mentioned that to me this week. And I was just meditating on it. It was so helpful. It says the Lord hears and is near to the crushed in spirit. He's eager to hear you. So in times of desperation, even when you don't have all the answers, will you come to the Lord for help and for hope? Well, we continue on in chapter 4, verses 38 through 44. And Elisha provides food for the hungry. In one instance, enough for 100 men. And we read at the end there, verse 44, so he set before them the food, And they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord, a double portion blessing. Enough food to satisfy and some left over. Again, we see the abundant generosity of the Lord and the power of his word. In chapter five, we find the story of another desperate man, Naaman. Chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So we learn a couple things about Naaman. He's not a Jew. He's Syrian. In other words, he's an outsider. He's an enemy. He's powerful. He's a successful commander in an army. And he's a leper. He's got a skin disease that would have made him a social outcast of sorts. People would have been afraid of him, disliked him. But more importantly, it would have made him unclean before the Lord. Uh, But the Lord is sovereignly at work. So you'll notice the Lord in his mysterious sovereignty is giving victory to Syria through Naaman. The Lord is sovereign over all things. Nothing escapes his hand. And he's he's working all this out to to bring healing and hope for Naaman. Now we see this in verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. 
and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Again, we do not know the tragic situation behind this little girl. We don't know what's happening. But we do know this, Genesis 50, 20 is still true. As you meant for evil against me, God meant for good. That's how sovereign God is. The Lord is utterly sovereign over all things. He's doing 10,000 upon 10,000 things at every nanosecond, all at once for the glory of his name and the eternal good of his people. I want you to be encouraged at the links God went to to save Naaman in this story. That's how far he goes to chase down his beloved children. Nothing will get in the way of the sovereign Lord graciously pursuing his own. We see this in the story of Naaman. In this instance, he's using the evil choices of human beings to bring about salvation. Does that sound like the cross? This girl knows Naaman's condition. And by the way of his wife, she tells him to go see a prophet, the man of God. And eventually, Naaman makes his way to Elisha. Look at verse 9 and following. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hands all over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the wells of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in rage. At this point, Naaman wants to be healed, but only on his own terms. It appears he's a bit prideful. He expected Elisha to come personally greet him and perform some elaborate ceremony just for him. I mean, doesn't Elisha know who this man is? And he sends out the intern to go tell him to do something? I'm not going to meet you. I'm going to send out the intern and he's going to tell you to go wash in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman is not a fan of the humility required. And Naaman isn't fond of the simplicity of the message. Wash, that's it. And Naaman isn't keen on the apparent narrow-mindedness of Elisha. Is the Jordan River the only way? Aren't there other equally good and better rivers that I could take a bath in? Do you see that Naaman's objections are the very ones people have today to the gospel of Christ? The gospel must humble us before it heals us. We must admit that we're sick and unclean before a holy God. The good news of the gospel stings before it makes us sing to God himself. And it really is a simple message of repentance and trust. Christ and Christ alone for salvation. It really is the only way. Because Jesus' perfect life is the only adequate righteousness to stand before God. Jesus' death on the cross is the only sufficient payment for our rebellion. And Jesus' resurrection is the only hope we have for true everlasting life. And so, friend, if you have any of these objections that Naaman have, I'd be honored to talk to you about why we believe what the gospel teaches is true and good and beautiful.
If that's you, I actually put a blank slot on my calendar this Wednesday at lunch for you. My treat, if Wednesday doesn't work, we'll find another day. But I'd love to talk to you about how we would answer some of those questions because they're good questions and you should ask them. I'd be honored to talk to you about them. But by God's grace, the servant girl continues evangelizing her master, verse 13. But his servant came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Think about this little, this, the Lord uses this enslaved servant girl as a conduit for grace to a proud, mighty commander. She has every reason to withhold forgiveness from grace from Naaman, but she doesn't. She compels him to believe the grace of God and the goodness of his word. Verse 14. So he, Naaman, went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I now know there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. Naaman has been healed. Skin is smooth as a baby. Did you notice his first words? I know there is no God in all the earth, but Israel. Naaman is a changed man. His leprosy is gone. But more importantly, so is his pride. He's not just physically clean. He's restored spiritually back to God. A double portion blessing. Once unclean outsider, now clean and a part of God's own family. Once an unclean enemy, now a cherished child in God's family. Beloved, this is our story. We too, once unclean, we too, once enemies and outsiders. But according to the word of the Lord, there was another servant who came to compel us to believe the grace of the Lord and the goodness of his word. And now we are not just clean. We are made whole. Not by going to a river. Not by going seven times. By coming to Christ once and for all. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter how riddled your past is with sin. Think about Naaman. If anybody was probably on uh, in a position not to be saved by God, it's Naaman. A rich outsider, leper, and God works all things in his mysterious sovereign grace to bring this man home. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your past is like. It doesn't matter where you're from. There's good news for you, almost too good to believe that in Christ, you can be washed, made clean, reconciled back to God. Will you come to Christ that you might be made clean and worship the Lord forever? Will you come? Unfortunately, chapter five doesn't end on a high note. How we see Elisha's servant Gehazi he doesn't listen to God's word. He's desperate. He's desperate to fulfill his own immediate desires. 
And instead of trusting the goodness of God, like unlike everybody else that runs to Elisha, Gehazi runs away from Elisha, from the Lord, from his word. And he, he's gripped by greed. He spends lies to get material possessions. And just like everyone else who rejects the word of the Lord, he's judged. He now has leprosy. Unclean. And I think it's a final reminder for us that in our desperation, we can either run to the Lord and his word or from it. One leads to life and blessing, the other to destruction and cursing. Which will you choose? Which will you choose? Second Kings 2 through 5, we see that Elisha is a man of God. He's a great prophet speaking God's word to God's people, showing compassion and bringing healing and hope because this is who the Lord is. But he is not the greatest prophet. Another prophet would come. And this prophet would miraculously feed not just 100, but thousands. This prophet would be mocked. He would not be told to go up. He would be thrust upon a cross and be told to come down. He would not call down a curse, but he would become the curse. And this prophet would not pay a monetary debt for two sons. He would pay an infinite spiritual debt for all who come to him. And this prophet would not just raise a woman's dead son. He himself would rise from the dead. And now this prophet covers us completely, uniting uniting with us, identifying with us, so that when the Lord looks down from heaven, all he sees is this prophet, and where there was once death, now there is life. And this prophet, we are washed and made clean, reconciled back to God and his people. This prophet is the greater Elisha. His name is Jesus. In your desperation, Help and hope are not found in a location. They're not found in a circumstance. They are found in a person, Jesus. Will you come to him? Let's pray. Lord, your grace is amazing. A God of double portions to the desperate and undeserving. How marvelous you are. Leave us stunned at the beauty of your character, the wonder of your grace. Help us, Holy Spirit, see and savor Jesus, the greater Elisha, that we would know our desperation and that we would boldly come to you even though we're undeserving because we stand next to another man, another king, with whom you have regard. We pray this, In the only name where you are for your throne, the name of Jesus the Christ, amen.